All right, we have been going through John chapter 11, which is the, the story of Lazarus, his death, and what happens after that. This is our third week going through chapter 11, and we're going to be in this story and its outworking for a few more weeks because more things happen out through about the middle of chapter 12. But it's good, it's good timing because I needed a, a, um, an Easter message, a resurrection message, if you will. And here one is right in the middle of the, the Gospel of John, which we're already going through. So go ahead and turn to John 11. We're going to start in verse 33 through verse 44, and that's going to be our text this morning. Let me go ahead and read it. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, that's Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? So the Jews said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. All right. So this is a, this is a famous passage and for good reason. The very first thing for us to see in this passage are the strong emotions running through Jesus as he prepares to confront death and to restore his friend to life. There is the famous verse, which is verse 35, Jesus wept. We all know that one. That's an easy one to memorize. Uh, but there's a lot more going on if you, if you look closely uh, besides that. There's more going on here. It says that um, twice it says that he was deeply moved. And that actually, that word there, has a connotation of anger or inner turmoil or agitation. Deeply moved is not necessarily a great translation of this. It, there's, a, there's a tinge of, of anger in that one. It also says he's greatly troubled. And that's the word that's used elsewhere when it talks about how there's a storm on the Sea of Galilee and the waves were tossed by the wind. That word, tossed by the wind, that's what greatly troubled means here. 
And there's also, you should know, there's a difference between the weeping that Mary is doing. Just before this, it says in verse 32, when Mary came to see, or came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, that word weeping is different than the word in verse 35, Jesus wept. So her, her weeping and sort of the, it's, it's demonstrative, it's loud, it's, the emphasis is on the noise, the noise of grief that's being made. But Jesus, it says, he, he, he quietly shed a tear. So there's a little bit of a difference there. He's not engaging in the loud grief of the other people who are, who are near the tomb. So Jesus is troubled inside, and he's obviously feeling sadness, but there's also a note of indignation or outrage that doesn't typically come through when we think of the word weeping or Jesus wept. And I think it's also interesting that there's only three occasions in all of the Gospels, all three of the Gospels, or four of the Gospels, uh, when Jesus is seen weeping, when he's described as weeping, is doing this. And one is in Luke 19, it's over, uh, he weeps over Jerusalem. Um, the other one besides this one is in Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It says that Jesus was, was weeping as he was, um, the, the sin of the world was coming down on him. And then here at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, those are the only three occasions. And so it's significant when we read that Jesus wept. Now, there are seven great signs recorded in the book of John pointing to Jesus's identity as the Messiah. The first one is turning water into wine in John chapter two. Um, the, the second one is healing the nobleman's son in chapter four. Then he healed the man at the pool who, was, who had been paralyzed for 30 years. That's in chapter five. He fed the 5,000. That's in chapter six. Then right after that, he walked on water. That's the fifth sign. The sixth sign was healing a man born blind, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And this here is the seventh and greatest of Jesus's signs that John records. And this is the only one in which Jesus seems to be so emotionally and mentally troubled. It might be because he's getting close to the cross, very close, maybe just a few weeks. But four times in just a few verses here, the emotional life of Jesus comes to the forefront of the narrative. And we watch him struggle as he moves toward the, the tomb, this dark cave that's full of death. And I think it's a good idea here to stop and ask ourselves, why was Jesus weeping? Have you ever thought about that? You probably have. Why was he weeping? The obvious answer is actually, when you think about it, it's, it, can't be the, it can't be the right answer. He can't be weeping because he's sad about Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus is about to come out of the tomb. He hasn't lost him at all. He's about to see him again momentarily. Right? He should be feeling joyful about what he's going to do for his friends, shouldn't he? Isn't that interesting? He should be feeling good about this what he's going to do. He's going to restore them. He's going to turn their weeping, their mourning into gladness like we looked at last week. So we shouldn't be too quick to assume that we know what's behind Jesus's tears here in this scene. That's, that's my point. Scholars and commentators have suggested a number of possible ex explanations. 
for um, the tears that Jesus sheds here. And there are three that I think are compelling and worth looking at. And the first one is um, that although, although Jesus has the happy ending in sight, he is still moved by our pain. He knows what's going to happen, and he's still moved by our pain in the moment. Jesus, we know he's compassionate and gentle. He's lowly and humble. He says things like, come to me, all of you who are exhausted and carrying heavy burdens. He offers us rest when we're weary. He never runs away from his people's pain in the gospels. You ever think about that? He doesn't run away from pain. He moves toward suffering, doesn't he? He goes to those who need healing, who need comforting. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And it should comfort us that Jesus, who we know is infinitely powerful, is not indifferent. Think about this. Think about this. A man who can do anything, might be tempted to stop feeling sympathetic about this or that, right? He might see human experience and say, well, I can make that come untrue. So there's no point spending energy mourning over these things. Well, that's not what Jesus does. He feels for us the way that we feel for each other and then some. And Matthew Henry said, the sickness of those we love is our affliction. Isn't that true? The more friends we have, the more frequently we are thus afflicted by sympathy. In other words, the more you love, the more you're vulnerable to sorrow. Jesus loves more deeply than anybody. Think about his sorrow here and think about his love. Think about what this means for the one who cares for everybody and sees everything. This is the one who so loved the world. Have we ever stopped thinking about our own suffering long enough to consider the sorrows of God? To realize what it must be like for him to never be loved as faithfully or as joyfully as he loves us. So Jesus wept. The second thing the scholars see here is that he sees unbelief all around him. And unbelief is the real sickness that leads to death. So take a closer look. Think about what's happening here. Most or all of these people have seen Jesus do incredible things, unimaginable things. They have seen his power before. It wasn't that long ago that he healed a man who had always been blind. That's never happened before. Jesus did it, they saw it, and yet no one seems to be paying him the kind of atten attention or expectation that they would have felt if they really believed in him. No one is asking, what's Jesus gonna do? All they're saying is, imagine what he could have done if he had been here, right? That's the kind of unbelief that he's surrounded by in this scene. So do you remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the chapter when the messenger first came to him out by the Jordan River? Do you remember what he said? He heard the, the one you love is ill. Do you remember? Do you remember what he said? A couple of things. It's in verse four. 
Not yet. It's, it's, it's before that, yeah. Um, he, but he said, this illness does not lead to death. And we've looked at what he meant by that because he knew it did lead to death, but it led through death to glory. And that's what's about to happen here. But there is an illness that leads to death. There is. It's unbelief. The rejection of Jesus. And this means, this means that the dead man in the tomb is in a better condition than many of those standing around refusing to believe in Jesus. Do you see it? Because the man who's in the tomb, he's dead as a doornail. He's not beyond Christ's reach. But those who finally reject Christ will go beyond grace and beyond love and beyond light. So he weeps for the unbeliever. You remember when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? In that case, I thought this was interesting. In that case, the Greek text uses the same verb, verb as Mary's weeping here. He did make noise when he wept over Jerusalem. A lot of noise. It was noisy. He was cut to the heart. And it's because of what he sees in the city and it's because of what he sees in the people that are standing around having no idea or not even a hope of what he could do. It's unbelief leading to destruction. Nothing, nothing grieves him more than that. Have you ever heard that line from John Donne's poem, um, Ask Not for Whom the Bell Tolls? Have you ever heard that? Hemingway wrote a novel, For Whom the Bell Tolls. Well, as long as you reject Jesus, as long as you refuse to look to him for salvation, I'm telling you, ask not for whom Jesus wept. He weeps for you. And the third thing is that he sees what has become of his creation. And this one, this is the most obvious to me. I mean, he created the world to be a place where life flourishes, where his creatures never, never stop living and enjoying the presence of their creator. But we sinned and we let death into the world. And now he is face to face with that ugliness and that desolation that came as a result of our sin. And if anyone was ever troubled by just the mere fact of death, by its existence, by its presence in our world, it would be Jesus who is the author of life and the one who is life himself. I want to say one more thing about Christ's emotions here, and that is that he is both sad and outraged. So like, like we looked at, deeply moved means indignant or outraged, but he also weeps, so he's also sad. And this points us to the need for a balanced response to sin and suffering. Here's what I mean. And this is a word to my Christians who are in the, in the room this morning. If we would be like Jesus, we must be both tender towards those who suffer and troubled by the world's rejection of the gospel. Both things together. And they're two, they're two sides of the same coin. In fact, you can't actually do one, either one well without doing the other. Because look, if you're compassionate towards sinners without being loyal to God's holiness, 
What is it? It's just sentimentality, right? You won't change anything. But if you're outraged by sin, as we all are at some time or another, for me, it's when I'm driving. <laughs> if, you're, if you're outraged by sin without a corresponding tenderness for the lost, then you're probably being self-righteous, which also won't change anything. In fact, if that's you, you're actually being more austere than our Lord himself towards sinners. And I think you should think about that condition carefully. Jesus shows us what a perfect marriage of holy outrage and human compassion looks like. And that's what's going on inside of him here. So Jesus is loaded down with strong emotions as he kind of moves into position now. Look at verse 39, well, 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And we'll stop there. What was happening here, and it's still done somewhat in, in, uh, in Jewish tradition, is that as soon as they die, uh, the person's body is, is laid to rest for a year and left to decompose, after which they gather the bones and put them in a box called an ossuary, and they, put it, they would put it in the wall of the tomb. So this tomb would have a sort of an antechamber where they would lay the body before it was actually deposited for good in the wall. That's what's going on here. Now, Isaiah 5.14, I actually think it's really, we're disconnected from this in our day and age, but the Bible anthropomorphizes things a lot. That, that means it puts it, puts it in a, like human imagery terms for us. And the Bible in Isaiah 5.14 speaks of the appetite of the grave and says that it has opened its mouth wide. And so I want you to picture here when the stone is rolled away from the cave and there's this gaping hole in the face of the rock and it's quite literally the mouth of the grave and this is what its breath smells like. It smells like death. Martha says, by now he stinketh. It's the King James. The death smells bad, and we all know that. But I want you to go a step further back. What causes death? What causes death? Sin. Romans 5, 12. Sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So death smells bad because in a very real and spiritual sense, sin smells bad. You get that? Death is just the physical representation of the stench that is sin. It's also interesting that now... Now that he's here, Jesus is standing in front of the one place that no one's ever come out of before. Never in the Bible was anyone called out from a tomb. There's only a handful of resurrections in the Bible. Elijah raised the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. Remember that story? 
Elisha did it too in 2 Kings 4. There's this really interesting story where um, they're burying a man and some enemies are coming down the road and so they throw his body. I had totally forgotten this story and they, threw, they throw his body into the same tomb where Elisha is buried. He touches Elisha's bones and gets up and comes out of the tomb. That's the closest thing to anybody coming out of the tomb. There's, two, there's three more. Jesus raised the widow's son in Luke 7 by speaking to him. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter in Luke 8 by taking her hand and speaking to her. And Jesus raises Lazarus here in John 11. That's it. Those are all of the resurrections in the Bible. It's interesting that people have always been tempted to contact the spirits of the dead, right? Still happens now. It's what a Ouija board is. And so the, the Old Testament has, actually has pro, prohibitions, has laws against consulting mediums and necromancers. It's forbidden. It was strictly against the law. And so when Elijah and Elisha brought dead children back to life, they're not talking to the spirits of the dead. They're actually, they're praying. They're talking to God, not the dead body. But when Jesus raises the dead, he talks to them like they can hear him every time. He does it in Luke 7, in Luke 8, and here. And it's totally consistent with what he said about himself. In John chapter 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. So look at how matter-of-fact this is. Look at how easy it seems to be. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There's no wind up, no fanfare. Jesus doesn't whip up the crowd, get them ready. So when the dramatic moment comes, they're extra super amazed. Real power doesn't need to announce itself. It just acts. And so Jesus does here, but... Look at the kind of power he has, power to raise the dead, power to call a man back from wherever the soul is four days after death, power to reverse decomposition, power to give life. So it is Easter, and we really can't talk about the resurrection of Lazarus without talking about the resurrection of Christ. And here's what, I wanna, here's what I wanna tell you about this. They're different. Lazarus lives again, but the risen Christ lives forever. Jesus restores Lazarus to life, but only to his former life. Do you see it? Lazarus would be one of the only people in the history of the world that died twice. That's something to think about. But when Jesus rose from the grave, when he conquered his own death, he came out of the ground something different. Paul calls it first fruits. Behold the glory of the risen Christ who died a common death but rose to become the first fruits of what we will become after we have fallen asleep also. So the resurrection of Jesus is the first of its kind. So far, he's the only one who's ever come back to life like this. And that includes Lazarus. We see his power here, 
But Lazarus is just a sign pointing to something greater. And I would put it like this. In Lazarus, in the raising of Lazarus, we see that death works backward when Jesus speaks to it. But in the resurrection of Jesus, we understand that not only will death work backward on the last day, glory will work forward and all of God's people who laid down in these bodies for the last time and slept will rise in bodies that can never be weighed down again by chronic pain or disease or the kind of fatigue and exhaustion that feel like death. There will be bodies that not only cannot die, but cannot even feel any of the sensations that remind us of death. Because living in this world doesn't only mean dying, it means always anticipating that, that final experience. It means facing death. A couple more things to say, and then we'll wrap up this morning. I want to propose to you that as we look at the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus this Easter Sunday, that resurrection is the only satisfying answer to suffering. I believe that's true. Let me show you. If you're still skeptical about resurrection, I want you to, to consider what the alternatives are. What other basis does anyone have to be hopeful? Is there anything? There's an author named Kate Bowler who wrote a memoir called Everything Happens for a Reason. That's her memoir. And in that memoir, she writes about her own suffering and her experience of what she calls the tyranny of prescriptive joy. Do you know what she means by prescriptive joy? Okay. Has anyone ever been told when they're really hurting, cheer up? Have you been told, this too shall pass? Have you been told, everything happens for a reason? Does Jesus say, everything happens for a reason? No. Or this one, you hear this in church all the time, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. Yes, he does. <laughs> no, really, that's, that's, an important, that's an important thing to understand because then when you feel yourself feeling like, this is more than I can handle. What do you make of that? Okay. So we've, we've all been on the receiving end of useless platitudes. We probably all said them too on accident. Don't mean to. But you can simultaneously, when you're in suffering and someone does this to you, you can simultaneously feel thankful that someone tried to reach out and irritated by what they're actually saying, right? Because what they're really expressing, or at least it feels like it, is their unwillingness to get dragged into your pain. So this is, and this is just the natural outworking of what people believe in our time. I want you to understand that. The, the premise, the entire, the entire, it's not even philosophical, it's just our operating system of our culture is that there is no God and that human beings are just the most advanced form of life that's evolved so far. 
And that the result of that is that suffering is inevitable, but it's also meaningless. And if it's meaningless, you should want to have nothing to do with suffering ever for any reason. It's consistent. So in the, in the end, you and everything, according to culture, you and everything you've ever experienced, love, pain, and all the rest, it's all going to rot and not mean anything in the end. That's what our culture believes. So is it any wonder why we do, why we do everything we can to avoid the pain and suffering of others? Is it really a surprise that when someone is hurting, our tendency is to run away and not toward? Doesn't surprise me. It, it isn't thoughtlessness when someone does this to you. It's sheer terror to face what we really believe about the world and about what human beings are. You can't let someone else's suffering intrude because then it'll summon the darkness and you'll have to face death. Actually, you'll be standing in front of a tomb, won't you? So the gospel is different. Resurrection is what makes the gospel different when we see suffering. Unbelief says that suffering is real and final. It's the truest thing about the human experience. The gospel says suffering is real, but it's not final. Jesus suffered and died, yeah, in the most real and physical terms. That happened to the man, Jesus. But then he rose from the grave, and that too happened in the most real and physical terms. And this makes all of the difference because this means that when we see somebody suffering, we can go and participate in that suffering, our job is not to cheer them up, it's to simply be with them in their pain. So gospel people, people who believe this, people who are shaped by the resurrection, we can, enc- we can encounter and participate in suffering without being defeated. Because at the very bottom, instead of hopelessness, We're part of a community that is shaped by the idea that after death comes more life. So here in front of the tomb, Jesus didn't tell anyone to cheer up. Even though he knew that momentarily, they would all be feeling a lot better. He still doesn't say it. He doesn't reject or try to redirect or manage the raw emotion that people are feeling. In fact, he even lets it he lets it in. And he's the only one who knows what's about to happen and he still lets it in. So a world that doesn't believe in resurrection can only offer platitudes to those who are in the shadow of death. That's all, that's all that it has to give. But Jesus speaks no platitudes. He speaks to the dead man and the dead man lives again. And I want to tell you one more thing. And I'm just going to tell you what Jesus told Martha in verse 40. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? If you believe, you will see the glory of God. So we've all heard the saying, seeing is believing, right? But in the Bible, it works backwards. Belief precedes sight. Jesus said in Luke 16, 31, that if they won't listen to God's word, they won't even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. 
He said that. So first be cured of your spiritual blindness by believing the gospel, and then you will see more than you could have imagined. And this is every believer's experience of faith. It comes first. But what is faith? In case you're wondering, what is faith? Dorothy Sayers wrote once um, that what we believe is not merely the theory that we most desire or admire, but it's the thing that consciously or unconsciously we take for granted and act on. It's what shapes our life. That's what we believe. So in other words, faith, faith in the gospel stands behind all real obedience and unbelief stands behind all of our sin. What a, what a man or a woman really believes will show up most clearly in what they do, not in what they pass off as their personal philosophy. That's faith. What you actually do shows what you believe. And I want to say to you right now at the end of our time together here that what it means to be a Christian or one of the things that it means to be a Christian is to live now as if you're going to live forever. Because you will. You don't have to watch people for long to realize that the vast majority, even a lot of folks who call themselves Christians, don't believe that they're going to be called out of the grave someday. But resurrection is part of your story, whether you believe it or not. Earlier in the book of John, Jesus said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. This is just a taste. Lazarus, wherever he was, heard the voice, came back, stood up and breathed again. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I was combing Elijah's hair this morning. And he looks up at me and he goes, is this last Easter? And I was like, I have no idea what you mean by that. <laughs> this is the most recent Easter. And he goes, no, is this last Easter? And I thought, no, buddy, that day's coming. On the last Easter, we'll all be together again forever. Let's pray.